Hello and welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Pershawn. I teach English literature and film studies at McEwen University, and the following is a lecture that I gave to my students in a course on steampunk, about steampunk before it was cool. I had trouble coming up with a title for this one. Uh, you know, steampunk in the 90s was one of them, but then I had that song, I, you know, I want to be like somebody in the 90s, ladies in the 90s, something about Britney. Anyway, that's all I could get through my head, so I was like, I'm not going to call it that. And then I thought about, like, I, I, I had an article that was called Seminal Steampunk, but one of my colleagues, uh, he's the new guy on the block, uh, <laughs> posted something on Twitter about, I wish people would stop using the word seminal because it just, it feels all sketchy, like it feels very um, porn-oriented. Uh, it was the, the, the direction he was heading with it. And so I was like, I'm not calling it that. I'm not, I already have an article that's called that, so I'm not calling it this because I've already made this terrible mistake once. Um and and so I just went with steampunk before it was cool. Uh, some people might say, well, you know, is it cool now? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it was cool for a little while there. It really was. Uh, and I feel like the, the, the bar for this is that, you know, it ended up on the Gilmore Girls um, at, at some point, the, the four episodes special series that they did on Netflix years after the original series. I feel like that says that, yeah, steampunk was cool at some point. But really, this is a way of me um, taking a look at steampunk in its early stages, the some of the inspirations, places where people have said, I think that's where steampunk began. I think that's where steampunk began. Um, and then I'll tell you where I think steampunk began. We'll talk about when the term was actually coined and look at some of the texts be they film, game, or uh, print, uh, uh, written, um, before we hit what most people would sort of consider the second wave of steampunk when it got big in the early 21st century. So we have to reach way back. Uh, there are, of course, as I mentioned in the last lecture, people who think that steampunk is Victorian science fiction, that H.G. Wells and Jules Verne are like proto- they're either proto-steampunk or they are steampunk, and I don't really think they're either of those things. I think that Marcel E. Mercado's amazing H.G. Wells versus Jules Verne image, where we've got these two, uh, you know, speculative fiction literary giants squaring off against each other with ray guns, you know, uh, ten paces and then turn and, and, and I guess fry each other, uh, that's steampunk. But that's Mercado working, you know, in the last two decades versus in the last, like, it, you know, two centuries ago. <laughs> uh, I don't, I, I, re I utterly reject the idea that Verne or Wells or anyone from before the late 20th century could be considered the person who started steampunk. And it's why I, you know, even though Mike Ashley's Steampunk Prime, a vintage steampunk reader, is a really cool repository of very, very early science fiction or very late scientific romances, 
it's really not steampunk. I think they were, the publishers were absolutely cashing in on the popularity. And there too, we see evidence of the popularity of steampunk. If you just look at the number of publications that were coming out with the, with the name steampunk or some sort of like, this is a steampunk book in between 2008, 2009, maybe up to 2012. Um, that's when the, 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 it lost its sheen. The honeymoon was over. Um, but uh, steampunk prime was to me evidence that steampunk was, was good business for publishers because it was a book that was just a bunch of um, public domain, really early speculative fiction on the science fiction side, uh, but it really wasn't steampunk. In fact, there's <laughs> there's things in that book where I'm like, no, this is like a complete rejection of a lot of the things that steampunk was all about. And then uh, Greg Bear, uh, one of the great science fiction writers of all time, really, uh, was at a conference um, that I attended and he said in a panel that he thought that steampunk began with um, production designer Harper Goff's uh, design of Captain Nemo's Nautilus, this submarine, in Disney's 1954 film, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Because uh, that's, a, that's a Nautilus that looks nothing like the Nautilus that Verne described. And in as much as I disagree with Bear that that's where it began, I would agree with him insofar as it being a major influence on late, like the more recent steampunk. Steampunk around uh, 2005 and up, you're really seeing people drawing heavily on the imagery of films from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and on, there was a there was just a, a, a deluge, and we're going to talk about this in an upcoming lecture at length, but just know for now that there was a film adaptation of Verne or Wells's work or a movie that tried to make you think it was one of those two things at least once a year between 1954 and then up into the 70s. And you might be like, wow, really? Only one per year? You got to remember that science fiction wasn't the box office draw that it is today. It was a huge financial risk in, you know, before Star Wars, it was a huge financial risk. And so, you know, the audiences could look forward to some sort of Vernian or Wellsian or quasi-Vernian-Wellsian adaptation every year. And that left, I think, a huge impact on a generation of creative minds. And that definitely played into uh, steampunk as it would become in the 21st century. Uh, and, uh, you know, coming off of the movie, you have to always re also remember that there was a theme park attraction uh, from 1971 to 1994. Uh, incidentally, 1971, the year I was born, I, it warms my heart because Leagues Under the Sea has been a favorite narrative of mine since I was a child. And I now understand why there was so much uh, merchandise available of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in the 1970s, it was Disney leveraging um, this attraction, saying, you know, like you could get the record of the story and you could get the, you could get a Viewmaster. Uh, they were these little like slideshow things you'd put up in front of your eyes. You click, 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 and you could see uh, the story of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and it had a very, ver a very Disney esque look to it. Um, going to this attraction was big business and, and, playing off of that attraction was big business in the early 70s. And that also left a mark on a generation of creative people, you know, people like me. 
and also in 1971, we got Michael Moorcock's uh, The Warlord of the Air. Now, Moorcock is probably best known for his sword and sorcery works, his Elric of Melnibone, um, and his other, you know, like Corum, um, these, these fantasy heroes, than he is for what we might consider his steampunk. Um, and I don't actually think of The Warlord of the Air as the starting point. This is going to be, this lecture is going to mostly be me going, no, no. I'm going to be like Mick Jagger on, on, uh, that, that comedy special. No, not funny, not steampunk. Um, it, I, I don't actually think this isn't steampunk, but I don't think this is where it starts. I know that's probably like, what, how can that be? Um, I'll explain in a little bit. Um, I think that you can have a thing. It's like, a, it's like starting a car when it's really cold. I think Michael Moorcock's The Warlord of the Air is like trying to get the engine running. Because um, as we're going to see in the lecture on uh, Vernian and Wellesian films, there was so... The, the, the sort of vintage era, the Victorian era, the quasi whatever the 19th century was to you, early, early 20th century, a nostalgia for that was, was in the air in the late 60s, moving into the early 70s. Michael Moorcock definitely tapping into that with this book, but it didn't leave the impact that many people would sort of ascribe to it. Like there's this sense in which, you know, I I think largely the people who wanted steampunk to be punk and they wanted it to be political could reach back to Michael Moorcock and say, that's where it began. Michael Moorcock was political, so steampunk is political. Michael Moorcock was political all the time. It didn't matter what Michael Moorcock was writing. He, he threw his politics all over the page. Um, and so I, I don't, I don't buy that this is the, this is the book that kicks it off. Though it is interesting to look at the covers for Moorcock's Warlord of the Air as a sort of, you know, how has steampunk evolved over the decades? Uh, this 71 version, the airships in the novel are rendered like chrome, um, fighter jets and rocket ships of the, you know, last two or three decades in Astounding Stories or something like that. It's a very futuristic look, not a retro futuristic look at all. And then, um, we jump up to 1982's edition and now we've got a, we've got airships that actually look like airships. They look like Graf Zeppelins. And, uh, right around the same time, uh, another version of uh, the cover, same year. This edition was also used on the German uh, cover, but this is a little more whimsical, a little more fanciful. Um, we can see the lead character who has been transported through time uh, to the future, as it turns out. That's one of the interesting things about the War Order of the Air is that it doesn't take place in a nostalgic past, but rather in a present in that it takes place during the 70s, but it's a present in which um, the sun really did never set on the Victorian Empire, that the British Empire still holds the world in its hand, and it's about uh, the warlord of the air is is uh, um, an Asian um, resistance fighter who wants to you know strike back against the evil empire, as it were. But anyway, we can see this very uh, I would say hyper vintage looking uh, airship there. 
Um, it's it's got a more Gonzo aspect than the the earlier uh, the other 1982 cover. Um, but then if you come up even more recently, it gets, it, it gets to feel a little bit more like what we would associate with steampunk. This is the, a cover for the White Wolf Omnibus edition, which is the first one that I ever owned of Moorcock's steampunk. I'm going to put that in air quotes. Um, and it's, it's an absolutely gorgeous cover. Uh, but what I found reading that omnibus edition is that what you know we we might consider Warlord of the Air steampunk because it's got this heavy Victorian feel, it's got airships, it's got the things that we would normally associate with steampunk. But then by the time you get to the second book in the series, that's largely being abandoned. It's this post-apocalyptic world, uh, doesn't have as much of a sort of nostalgic retro futuristic feel. And by the third book, we can say that that is almost completely abandoned. Um, the 2013 cover for Michael Moorcock's The Warlord of the Air, certainly playing off of the success of steampunk uh, in the years right prior leveraging that and saying, hey, do you like steampunk? You'll like this book too. Um, and so there's no doubt that you can take Moorcock and sort of yank him forward a little bit of time travel uh, there as well to to be, uh, you know, reverse engineered into steampunk. Um, but saying that he's steampunk proper, that, that or that's where steampunk begins, I, I should say it that way. To say that that's where steampunk begins, I think there's, that's problematic because he doesn't kick anything off. He doesn't sort of start a, you know, a renaissance of other steampunk works. Whereas uh, it's a little easier to argue that K.W. Jeter and his friends, <laughs> Jeter and friends, did. They kicked it off. And maybe it was just them doing it. It was just the three, these three writers from California. Moorcock was a British writer. You'd almost think he should be the one to do it. But no, it was a couple of Americans. And they were all really into um, this, this book that Jeter had found uh, while he was at a, um, like a flea market. And it was uh, Mayhew's uh, account of the London poor from the 19th century. This basically Mayhew was kind of like a reporter and he wrote in a journalistic style and he crafted these massive volumes. Uh, most, most people, if they get a paperback edition of it, have it a, a heavily abridged version. I had to go and find these like huge, um, unabridged versions to really see the impact of this, these, these volumes on Jeter's work. Um, but it's there. Uh, and Jeter picked up these books and he was reading them and he was super fascinated by this very candid account of what life was like for London labor and the London poor, which is what the, the title of the book is. And he had, um, the, 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 both he and, um, I believe Blaylock, he's one of the other writers from the, the Californian circle, were given the opportunity to write, um, narratives about Arthur in other times, King Arthur in other times. And Jeter's was the only one that ended up getting published at the time. And it was called Morlock Knight. It is a sequel to the time machine. And what's really wild about this is that this is another one of those places where people will reach back to the past to legitimate steampunk when it's, you know, like people are like, oh, it's just silly. And they're like, oh no, it's been around for years. And it was very serious. And they'll say things about Jeter's work and about uh, Powers and Blaylock, those are the other guys, um, work as though it's this really serious 
political commentary. There is a there's a statement made uh, in one of the uh, Tachyon um, steampunk anthologies by a um, scholar named Justin Evans, and he implies that old steampunk was really really serious, and new steampunk was really really is really really silly. And aside from Michael Moorcock, there really isn't very much serious political or serious social commentary uh, in 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 early steampunk. Jeter's writing a rollicking good tale, you might say, about um, the reincarnation of King Arthur at the time when the Morlocks, the creatures from H.G. Wells's time machine, uh, have gotten their paws on the time machine and they've come to London and all hell's breaking loose and Merlin shows up and that's always funny to me because of the whole like, you know, it's science fiction and I'm like, okay, there's time travel that's science fiction-y here, but now we've got Merlin and a reincarnated Arthur and Excalibur and that feels awfully fantasy. It's, it's a glorious mess though and of Jeter's steampunk works, I, I love it. I, I think it's great. Now he wrote that in 1979. I think that this is, the, he can lay claim to having the first bona fide steampunk novel, but not necessarily the first bona fide steampunk work in America, as we'll see in just a moment. Um, it would take him about a decade to write the second of his, as this header calls it, a mad Victorian fantasy, Infernal Devices. Um, and it's, it's entertaining. It's funny. Um, it has a little bit of what you might call social commentary going on, but uh, mostly I think that's in the service of some of the jokes um, in the text. Some people take it more seriously than I do, um, but it's not nearly the, the you know, political treatise that some people would, you know, like to think that it is. Uh, but it is, at the very least, exactly what Stefan Hantke, who wrote one of the first articles about steampunk, said, uh, which is that these books are largely, you know, they're about revolutions where nothing, you know, revolutionary ultimately happens in the end. They're what we might term secret histories where, you know, we've got, you know, gr great adventures happening behind the scenes, but they don't impact history in any significant way. They don't change the, the, the time stream as we find back in, in Michael Moorcock's uh, Warlord of the Air, where time really does get changed up. Um, so Jeter wrote two uh, steampunk books in the 80s. And uh, a friend of his, Tim Power, so these guys all hung out together, uh, and they not only hung out together, but they hung out with a really famous uh, science fiction writer, and I'll save that for just a second. Um, but Tim Powers uh, was also fascinated by Mayhew's book, and, you know, uh, he wrote his uh stab at London, you know, in the old times. But his takes place before the Victorian period. It's called The Anubis Gates. It's a time travel novel. It is utterly entertaining, but that's like just about every Tim Powers novel I've ever read. Uh, incidentally, Tim Powers wrote the novel that um, the fourth Pirates of the Caribbean movie was based on, but please don't judge Tim Powers' book by that movie's narrative, because they're not the same. So I highly recommend checking out Powers' On Stranger Tides. The Anubis Gates, though, is just an entertaining read. It lacks the, the strong techno-fantasy elements or the retro-futurism elements that we normally associate with steampunk, but I refuse to kick it out of the steampunk um, umbrella the, the, because uh, 
I think it shows, it demonstrates that at, at in these early stages, there wasn't a concentrated effort to corral steampunk. They say like steampunk has to have this, 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 and this. Uh, Tim Powers is the guy coloring outside the lines, and um, he's been associated with early steampunk so much that I think it's worth keeping him there, if for no other reason than to just trouble the waters. James P. Blaylock is, for my money, the most steampunk of these guys. Even though it turns out that he's not the one to coin the term, he's the one who writes the most. And in conversations with him, um, he's really the one who loves the period that he's drawing from, I would say, the most as well. It wasn't just a fascination with Mayhew. It was a love of writers from the 19th century that to a large degree, drives Blaylock's style. But Blaylock's first stab at what we might term steampunk was the digging Leviathan, which takes place in modern in modern America. What is steampunk about this are the techno-fantasy and the retro-futuristic elements of building a digging machine, a machine that's, you know, to go to the center of the earth, as it were. Um, it is a wildly fun and whimsical novel, as most of Blaylock's work is. Written in 1984, he followed it up with a bona fide Victorian fantasy called Homunculus, the first of many adventures of um, his, he has this, this Sing this singular hero that he comes back to over and over again, who has, you know, a group of, uh, you know, adventuring, um, I almost said buffoons, because to a large degree, they're, they're a really sort of madcap and motley uh, bunch. Um, but it was, this was a, this was another book in that series. Um, or it was the first book I should say in that series. And it, and it introduced all of these wild characters and, uh, Blaylock's, um, hero of that series. And he followed that up with a sequel to Homunculus. So now he's continuing this series with his hero, Langdard, Langdon St. Ives. Um, and this novel was called Lord Kelvin's Machine. That was in 1992. And then he didn't touch that universe again for quite some time. Now, before I go on to tell you a little bit more about Blaylock, I'll also say that he wrote short stories in this universe. And he had a published short story called The Ape Box Affair, which was published before K.W. Jeter's Morlock Knight. Consequently, Blaylock is arguably the first American to write what I would say would be steampunk, uh, something that becomes steampunk at the very least. And and I'll, I'll let everybody know, I don't really care where we, you know, sort of say, whether we say something is or isn't steampunk. I'm not interested in, in excluding or including so much as going, when does this begin? So people say, well, when does this begin? And, and it, it became fashionable for a while in steampunk uh, scholar scholarly circles or steampunk, you know, expert circles, gatekeepers, to come up with some starting point for steampunk that nobody had ever heard about. And they got more and more esoteric as, as time went on. And I was like, you can't argue that this book that nobody but you knows about is the starting point for steampunk. It's a ridiculous argument. You need to go and find something that would be widely influential. And while... Um, Jeter, Powers, and Blaylock, none of the three had a huge hit on their hands with any of these books. They were at least 
uh, moderate successes at the time. And they were, you know, they continued to publish in that vein, potentially because they were friends with Philip K. Dick. Uh, and if we were to take a closer look at the cover to The Digging Leviathan with its lovely cover um, uh, by the guy who did the Dinotopia artwork, um, you, you would see that it's Philip K. Dick who has the bl blurb on the front cover. They were, um, you might say Dick was a mentor, but he was also a really good friend for them. Uh, and that helped them in, in the publishing world uh, when they were getting started. But as you'll see, they are, they are the kickoff for what becomes a pretty steady stream. And it might not be an issue of influence. It might just be that thing where like Pearl Jam kind of sounded like Stone Temple Pilots, or at least the lead singers did at the outset. And people used to confuse, you know, one for the other because they, you know, they didn't know the difference. I think there may be some of that going on here where what, you know, what uh, bands that sound alike often do is they all listen to the same music when they were growing up. And so they have the same influences. And I think that that's some of what's going on here. But we get a real, um, we get a critical mass of content uh, with Jeter, Powers, and Blaylock. And then that moves into the 90s, as we'll see in just a moment. Blaylock would come back to steampunk in the 21st century with this, you know, resurgence of interest. And then people start looking, you know, where, where do we go to find more steampunk? Uh, the Tachyon steampunk anthology, which was, um, you know, widely circulated. A lot of people picked it up. I mean, you went to Amazon or whatever bookseller online you wanted to get your books from, and you typed in steampunk and, hey, there's a book that's actually called steampunk and it was an anthology of short stories for the most part novellas but it had uh blaylock's uh novella that he turned into the novel of lord kelvin's machine and so i think that drove people to go and find more blaylock so he had a resurgence in popularity um and he there was a he had a, a really good publishing relationship with Subterranean Press. They make these beautiful prestige editions of books, and he's continued to publish novellas with them uh, since well, really 2008. They put out a, an omnibus edition, a collection of of his Langdon St. Ives uh, novels. But Titan Books uh, also picked up. Um, Blaylock's early works reprinted them and then printed new Langdon St. Ives novels like the Aylesford Skull. And if you look at the cover for the Aylesford Skull, you, you, we see that they, they don't just write James P. Blaylock. They say the multi-award-winning author, James P. Blaylock, steampunk legend. Ooh, steampunk legend. Um, and I think that's largely due to his... He he was, out of out of all of the three... Blaylock embraced steampunk the most. It wasn't that there was any strong rejection. Powers showed up at steampunk conventions. Jeter showed up at steampunk conventions. But the difference between Jeter and Powers was that they weren't putting out new steampunk, whereas Blaylock seemed to want to strike while the iron was hot and started producing new steampunk works. And his most recent one, The Goblin Society, uh, was published in 2020. So, you know, he's still going. He's still going with, with, with his steampunk content. Um, but speaking of conventions, speaking of Jeter being at a convention, uh, I was at Steampunk, or sorry, Steamcon 3 in Seattle in 2011. And uh, Jeter was at the what they called the Airship Awards, and uh, he gave a speech. And during his speech, he revisited something that he'd said a couple times in interviews before, and he certainly said since. And I've had this confirmed by Blaylock and Powers that when Jeter 
coined the term. He's the guy. When he coined the term steampunk, it was a joke. It was meant to be funny. He had been asked by Locus Magazine, the industry magazine about science fiction and fantasy, what do you call this stuff that you and your friends are publishing? This this kind of madcap Victorian stuff. What, what do you call this? What do you call these things? And Jeter's reply was in print. And, and we, we can go and we can see it. We can see an actual, uh, you know, moment where a word got coined. He was being glib. He was, he was, re- he was referring to the popularity of cyberpunk. And, and then you also had ribofunk and you had like splatterpunk. You had all these punks going on in the, in the, um, 1980s as I think largely a reaction to the popularity and, uh, straight up. Uh, parroting of Tolkien's work. And these were writers, cyberpunk writers were writers who wanted to get away from Star Wars. And I kind of think that steampunk writers to some degree were people who wanted to do fantasy that wasn't Tolkien. But at any rate, he said, I don't know, we could call it steampunk. He, I think he was serious when he said that he thought it could be the next big thing. But I don't think he was envisioning it in the way that it would manifest in uh, 2005, 6, 7, 8, as it became something other than just a literary or film phenomenon. But Jeter at that dinner confirmed, I was just goofing around. I was, it was a joke. I never envisioned, and he, refer- he sort of swept his arm to the assembled crowd, most of whom were dressed in steampunk finery, you. I didn't imagine it would be this. Um, and so I think we can say that, that there is something distinct about the appropriation of steampunk in the 21st century versus Jeter coining the term at this point. He really didn't think the word was going to have legs. That's normally how language is, though. I mean, you try to make a meme and you can't do it. You post some goofy thing of you doing something funny with a cat and the next thing you know, it blows up. Steampunk blew up. Uh, but I think it's these three, these three guys who are the... The, I, I, I jokingly referred to them as the steampunk trinity, both because of the fact, both because there's three of them, but also in that sense of like the trinity test of the atomic bomb, that there's a sort of blast pattern that we can look at. And if we observe the blast pattern with them at the center, then we can imagine, uh, you know, Warlord of the Air or 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea as being out on the fringes of the blast pattern and say, yeah, those are absolutely influences, or we might say they're proto-steampunk. But once we hit Jeter and Powers and Blaylock, we're really getting closer and closer to something that uh, approximates what steampunk has become, uh, that that fulfills some of the aesthetic features that I spoke about in the last lecture, that there's techno-fantasy, that there's retrofuturism, that there's some level of hyper-vintage going on. I mean, the, the, the idea of three Americans writing about Victorian London alone has a sense of hyper vintage to it. How could they possibly know what London is really like living in California, hanging out with Philip K. Dick, right? How can they be experts on that thing? It shows that what they were doing was they were writing fanciful tales, really great, uh, exciting stories about um, some version of, of the past but not necessarily ones that, you know, were meant to be taken super seriously. We're going to get to one in just a second that should be taken seriously, but first a digression over to comic books. There are people who would point to um, some really uh, esoteric um, comics from prior to 
uh, Gotham by Gaslight as early steampunk comics, but I don't think they're really worth the kind of attention that most people pay them. Gotham by Gaslight, on the other hand, was a huge success. It was the first of what DC would come to call its Elseworld stories, the DC equivalent in many ways to the What If series from Marvel. What if the Batman was, you know, in the 19th century and Jack the Ripper moved in, moved to Gotham, right? That's the premise of Gotham by Gaslight. And it was successful enough that it spawned some other versions of the same concept um, that were less successful. And I would argue that's largely because those later uh, works didn't have the creative team that Gotham by Gaslight did. They were working with a really great writer, Brian Augustine, and one of the greatest comic artists of all time, Michael Mignola, Mike Mignola, who, as it turns out, we're going to see again. Mike Mignola helped shape steampunk. I don't think he's ever, like, overtly gone out and been like, I'm going to make me some steampunk. But he has certainly done some design work that has heavily influenced it. And I think Gotham by Gaslight was one of those instances. But its success spawned a Wonder Woman uh, graphic novel that was an Elseworlds piece, a Superman one where he's in the uh, the Civil War, you know, born in Kansas, but, uh, but you know, 150, 200 years earlier. Um, so... This was, we, we need to be taking a look at all of the instances because if we just look at the literature, we're going to miss how the 21st century all of a sudden has this explosion where steampunk isn't literary for a while. It's fashion, it's film, and it's game. And then, you know, the, the publishing world catches up to it for a brief period again. Uh, also, the and speaking of games, um, the, uh, the, the role-playing game Space 1889 was another moment of, hey, let's play in a fantastic past, sort of the Victorian period, right? 1889, it was published in 1989. Um, and this is one of the most successful role-playing games of all time. It, it's still got legs. It's still out there. There's still people playing it. Um, Vampire the Masquerade is another instance of games having a massive influence on steampunk because you had uh, people who were into a goth aesthetic or who were straight up goth playing a live action role playing game quite often uh, in, in with this this uh, this game from White Wolf Press. Uh, and this came out in 1991. And I, I, I remember uh, running an event. Uh, it was like a murder mystery, like a Wild West murder mystery. And this was this was in the early aughts. So this was years after Vampire the Masquerade was around. But this is just to tell you what it looked like. We were doing this at uh, the for, uh, Fort Edmonton, which is a fur trade fort that's been recreated here in Edmonton. And we were doing a, a Wild West murder mystery at the saloon at Fort Edmonton. And across the street at the tea house, there was a Vampire the Masquerade event going on. So we had a whole bunch of people dressed in Wild West clothes on the one side of the street. And on the other side of the street, we had people dressed in Victorian finery. And at the end of the night, I was taking everything down and packing stuff up and taking it out to my car. And there was fog blowing in off of the uh, North Saskatchewan River. And I looked across the street and there were these two people walking arm in arm, two vampires, I guess. He had beautiful long hair. Um, she was in this wonderful dress. They looked the part 100%. And I looked over and I went, huh, 
because by, by, I, I hadn't started studying steampunk, but I would come back to that image again once I started studying it. It was odd to me that it took me as long as it did to, you know, sort of put two and two together with Vampire the Masquerade and steampunk. But I think that the popularity of this role-playing game, which is also one of the greatest hits when you talk about, you know, really successful role-playing games, Vampire the Masquerade is easily in the top 20, if not the top 10. Um, and, and, and how much of an influence that would have when steampunk got popular. Because if you played Vampire the Masquerade in the 90s, steampunk comes around in the aughts, you look in your closet and you're like, I have a whole bunch of Victorian stuff. And you say, all I have to do is put cogs and goggles on it. Um, but I think, I, I really do think there was a strong influence there. Um, but uh, on, the li- on the literary side, William Gibson... Uh, and you can see on the original cover, the first edition of The Difference Engine, this novel, The Difference Engine, um, they they play up author of Mona Lisa Overdrive. So William Gibson, author of Mona Lisa Overdrive. Well, what was Mona Lisa Overdrive? It was one of the books in a series of books that really kicked off cyberpunk. And consequently, because William Gibson was... Like, you put William Gibson's name on a book in 1991 and it would sell. And I know this because just about every steampunk I ever met in the early days would say, oh, yeah, I own the Difference Engine. And I'd be like, and? And they'd be like, well, I've never finished it. There's so many people who would either say, I've never finished it or I've never read it. Everybody knew about it, but very few people have read it. It's a difficult book to read. It is not a real page turner. It is excellent. I won't deny that. Gibson wrote it uh, with Bruce Sterling, who was also strongly associated with the cyberpunk movement. Um, But the Difference Engine is a different animal when it comes to, you know, people will point to it and they'll say, it's steampunk. And I'll say, okay, yeah, sure. Put it in. If you're going to put the Difference Engine in steampunk, then Tim Powers' Anubis Gates absolutely gets to stay. And here's why. If you've got Tim Powers on one end of the spectrum with, you know, just fantasy and not much in the way of technology, because that's really, Anubis Gates is a fantasy. It's a Victorian fantasy, if it's anything. Um, Then, you know, Gibson and Sterling's The Difference Engine is at the other end of the spectrum where we have techno fantasy, but they're trying really hard to make it feel very similar, plausible that you read the difference engine and you don't go, this is gonzo weird technology, but rather that this is a serious answer to the question, what if Charles Babbage's difference engine could have been made and worked and worked even better than he imagined? It's basically a cyberpunk novel transplanted into the 19th century. And the AI of this Babbage engine, this difference engine, um, becomes self-aware at the end of the novel. It is very much a Gibson novel. I haven't read enough Sterling to say whether or not it's like him. But because it was so popular, there it, it sort of colored what people thought steampunk would be when the resurgence came around. Uh, and it led to a lot of people tacitly assuming that because Gibson and Sterling were associated with cyberpunk, that steampunk was too. But there just aren't that many, if there are any others, and I'm waiting for somebody to tell me who the others are. There aren't any other writers associated with cyberpunk who wrote steampunk, and this is the only steampunk these guys wrote. So if you read somewhere that cyberpunk gave birth to steampunk, you can go, nope, uh, because that's just not true. It's, It's not true. It didn't emerge from the cyberpunk scene. It emerged from that Californian trio. You know, that's, that's where it came from. Uh, 1993, Michael Swanwick's The Iron Dragon's Daughter troubles the waters even further. Whereas 
Gibson and Sterling are asking a serious counterfactual question. Swanwick invents a wholly secondary world. He actually said that the Iron Dragon's daughter was his love letter in some ways to Tolkien. It is a fractured love letter. Uh, we've got coke-snorting uh, Armani-suited elves in this novel, but it begins in a very Dickensian way. A very, very, what we would think of as steampunk today, it, it feels, you know, it aligns with all of those things. It's got an orphan, it's got a, you know, um, a terrible factory, um, but it's got a dragon. But it's cool because it's a dragon that is, it's a machine. Um, and again, rendered in that sort of chrome look that we saw for Warlord of the Air, cover of Warlord of the Air, some really nice, a really nice chrome looking metallic dragon, uh, more recent editions of the book. Here's some cogs on the cover. This might be steampunk, so please pick it up. Um, but Swanwick's Iron Dragon's Daughter is, again, it's fantasy. With a little bit of, it's a, there's techno fantasy. There's a, there's the veneer of science fiction kicking around here, but it is it has far more fantasy than it does science fiction. So steampunk before it was popular, nobody knows what it is. It's it's a grab bag of a whole bunch of different approaches. It's the wild west, and not in a wild wild west way, although it will become that. Um, but just you know, there's this guy over here, and he's doing fantasy, and there's this guy over here, he's doing serious alt alt history and there's this guy over here and he's doing a role-playing game about vampires and there's this guy over here and is vampire the masquerade you know steampunk straight up no but it is part of this i don't know bizarre venn diagram maybe uh of of influences that will lead to steampunk castle falkenstein on the other hand absolutely is steampunk um it is high adventure in the steam age and once again one of the more popular role-playing games to emerge in the 1990s um it was it was interesting uh if for nothing else in that most role-playing games you use dice to generate random events castle falkenstein used a uh, deck of cards because you know people in the victorian age used to play whist um so you know you could play as what we think of as very eurocentric victorian style heroes but we also need to consider video games and final fantasy 6 might be the unsung hero of why steampunk emerges in the next decade because we're looking at a game I mean you just look at the cover of the original super nintendo package and it has a sort of retro futurist vintage hyper vintage feel going on some techno fantasy there as well and once you get into the actual game and you see that ghost train i mean it's sepia toned it's everything that steampunk will become sure it's rendered in you know a much lower pixel rate than you know games today but this is one of the most successful video games of all time so how could we not admit that it likely had a massive influence made in 1994 and in the next decade people going like i want to do you know that, that you grow up playing a game like that and how many hours it takes you to get past the level especially the train and when you finally do you know that's lodged in your memory and if you're a creative type you're going to come into the next century and go hey you know what we could do we could do this really cool like steampunk train or whatever it might be Right. Without necessarily having the word for it, because a lot of the a lot of the works that we've looked at so far, they don't really they're not like, and here's a steampunk game for you. Final Fantasy VI, a steampunk adventure. They're not doing any of that. But Paul DeFilippo's the steampunk trilogy sure did. 
And consequently, this is from 1995, um, consequently got a lot of press when steampunk became popular. Because if you're going to go and you're going to do a search, you're going to get that tachyon uh, anthology, or you're going to get Paul DeFilippo's The Steampunk Trilogy, in which uh, all sorts of crazy things happen. It's really three novellas in one book. And at one point, uh, Emily Dickinson gets it on with Walt Whitman. It's a weird book. I would not say that it had a great influence on what steampunk would become. Um, so I'm just going to pass it. I'm going to pass over it. But I needed to talk about it because there are people who are like, yes, yes, the steampunk trilogy. Let's talk about it. And academics love this sort of thing. I mean, there hasn't been a ton written about it, but, you know, academics love it because it's like, oh, we know about Walt Whitman and we know about Emily Dickinson and, oh, God, they're having sex. Uh, so, you know, they, they might look into it, but... I don't really think this book had a huge influence on the steampunk that would come in the next decade. Whereas City of Lost Children, this was a wonderful, beautiful French film um, and with the production design. Well, it wasn't the production design. The costume design was done by the uh, same guy that made like corsets for Madonna. So there's a relationship there too. And we'll get to that another day. Um, but here we are in 1995. This, I think, had a greater impact, even though, like, this wasn't a far, you know, this wasn't a far-flung movie. This movie wasn't, you know, everywhere. It wasn't super popular or anything. But, you know, if you were a, a, a film aficionado, it was the sort of thing that your weird DVD store might carry. So City of Lost Children, in terms of its aesthetic look would have a stronger impact, I would say, on where, where, where we find steampunk in the next decade than something like Paul DeFilippo's The Steampunk Trilogy. So we'll move on from there because we're going to come back and talk about that, that film in an upcoming uh, lecture at length. Um, one of the huge works of steampunk from the 1990s is arguably Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials. Uh, which began with the UK uh, version being uh, Northern Lights. Um, uh, in North America, it was called The Golden Compass. Um, but uh, this, is a, this is a book that absolutely, I think, belongs in, in the steampunk, if there is a canon for it. Um, and Pullman was massive in the 90s. You want to talk about like successful writers? It was Pullman and Pratchett, Terry Pratchett, right up until J.K. Rowling started producing Harry Potter. It was Pullman and Pratchett, you know, bringing in the money. And it's fascinating to me that there's been very little work done on the Golden Compass as steampunk. Uh, and again, I have to wonder if that isn't simply because the Golden Compass comes across as fantasy and people get told, oh, well, steampunk is science fiction. And so then they just pass over Pullman. But I don't think Pullman should be passed over because I think not only is his work massively influential, just given how many young people would have read it, as well as older people. Um, this is a, you know, a hugely popular novel, hugely controversial one as well, or series, I should say. It was a hugely uh, successful series, uh, but it also affords us the opportunity to look at how steampunk is on the move in the um, television version of it from from the BBC. A beautiful, beautiful series, um, but they they make a number of really fascinating changes to the era that we're in the the nature of the vintage elements in the television version of His Dark Materials are unlike 
many previous iterations. Like if you look at the film or you look at people's fan art or you, you know, you look at the comic book, uh, there seems to be a stronger adherence to keeping it closer to the beginning of the 20th century in terms of the look of the the technological elements in the series but with the television series his dark materials um there are a number of elements that look like we might be creeping up into the 30s or the 40s or maybe even the 50s in in, in certain cases and that again is is i think um a space where steampunk is going to continue to be shifting at least in popular consciousness and that's really the only place that i'm interested in studying it because um i'm not interested in having conversations with gatekeepers where we're sitting off in a corner and we're going, well, steampunk has to stay in this little box. And if you go outside that box, it can't be steampunk because then we're not talking about steampunk anymore. We're talking about what steampunk was 20 years ago. So Pullman affords us a really great opportunity for study. We come up to the end of this journey or very close to the end of it with China Mievel's Perdido Street Station. China Mievel's Perdido Street Station, um, which is a book that I have a love-hate relationship with. I love Mievel's vision. I love his ideas. I'm not a big fan of his prose, which I find to be too ornate, uh, too pretentious. Um, oh, I'm, I've, I've run my slides out of order here. Um, so we'll, we'll come back to Mievel. <laughs> my apologies. Um, 1999, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. We get Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill's basically Victorian Justice League was the pitch. Victorian Justice League. We've got Vern's Captain Nemo. We've got Mina Murray from Dracula. She survived Dracula's assaults and she is the leader of the group. We've got Alan Quatermain, um, you know, great adventurer and explorer, the Invisible Man. We've got Dr. Jekyll slash Mr. Hyde, and they form this this monstrous band of heroes who protect Britain at, in a Victorian milieu, at least in the first volume, a, a very close to the end of the 20th century in the second volume, and then the series largely departs from that in later books. But this was, again, one of those really popular nodes. And so you can see, you know, once we hit uh, Jeter, Blaylock and Powers, we get a pretty consistent delivery of steampunk content. And uh, and that brings us in then now to China Mievel's Perdido Street Station, which was released in 2000 and had uh, sequels in 2002 and 2004. And some people, again, would say, nope, sorry, uh, Mievel's Perdido Street Station and its sequels cannot be considered steampunk because they're too much fantasy. But there is certainly an element of science-y, techno-fantasy to the world that Mievel has imagined, which is this city, in the first book at least, the city of Balag, or Balag, which is quite obviously a fantasy London. Um, we depart that world for the scar, uh, the, the sequel to it, but the floating city that is the location uh, for the second book is also, you know, it, it, it mirrors many of the, the elements of Balag in the first book, but it, it still has that vintage feel to it. And Mieval's books uh, are beloved. There are people who just absolutely can't get enough of his work. Like I say, I absolutely love his ideas. And I, I especially do love that he has destabilized um, the conversation around steampunk, whether he meant to or not. Um, he brought something to the table that you know wouldn't fit into the the little box that people had established for steampunk or would establish for it in the coming decade, and he would be able to sort of trouble those waters. There was a comic book series from Cliffhanger Comics. Um, 
which was never completed. There was 12 issues. Uh, it is a glorious mess of a comic. I love it and I hate it. Uh, I love looking at the art. It, it, the sequential art is kind of rubbish at times. I'm like, what the heck just happened there? Um, but it was a really, really cool narrative. And one of the things I absolutely love about it is that it's so colorful. And steampunk got awfully sepia-toned. Uh, for a while there, it was, you know, the, the joke, when goths discovered brown. And steampunk, as a comic isn't it's 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 just it's got all these rich colors it's got really strong tim burton influences in there um but it, it's it's neat to see as a visual artifact of someone's idea of steampunk a steampunk world before there was this crystallization of what it ought to be what steampunk ought to be and i love it as well because you can't discount the possibility of a comic book being in direct sales comic stores with straight up title steampunk, right? They didn't call this anything else. They didn't call it like a, you know, a, a clunky robots adventures or something like that. Um, they didn't give it any other title than the genres or the subgenres word itself, right? K.W. Jeter's term being appropriated as a title. And I think that really shoves it up into uh, public consciousness. Um, if we take a look at a Google Books Ngram viewer, we can see the use of steampunk. How often are people using it um, between the, the period of 1971 with Michael Moorcock's uh, Warlord of the Air and today? And it is a really, really steep climb after 2005. But you can see it take off somewhere about the mid-90s going on this, this, you know, this rise. Um, but it really starts to climb after 2000. When I was doing my, re my initial research and did this, this sort of engram thing, we didn't have this crazy steep Everest-style incline uh, after 2005. So it just, you, you could see a really strong uptick even at the time. What happens in 2000 for that liftoff, what brings it into the pop popular imagination. I don't really think it's uh, the steampunk comic, although that probably contributed a little. We have to step a little ways back to 1999 and the absolutely craptastic film Wild Wild West. Now, you can love it if you love Wild Wild West and you're sitting there going, I'm irate, that's my favorite movie. Keep loving it. Everybody gets to love salt and vinegar chips or whatever crap we like to put into our body. So everybody gets to love a few movies that absolutely stink. I mean, my, my podcast is named after an absolutely terrible, it's named after an element from a really, really crappy B-movie from the 1980s. When I saw Wild Wild West, I didn't know what I was looking at. I just knew that it was a bad movie. <laughs> I thought the production design was kind of cool, but it's a bad movie. And, uh, but it was, it was Will Smith, for heaven's sake. You put Will Smith in anything in the late 90s, and it would make money. And Wild Wild West did. It made some money. And so people knew about it. And when we talk about why steampunk becomes popular in the next decade. We can't discount this. I don't think this is the only reason it happens, but we can't discount it. This is the moment at which steampunk is no longer this underground thing that it's been. If, if the second movement of steampunk is called a wave, we often call the, the, that a, the second wave of steampunk. And people talk about the first wave and I'm like, that was not a wave. It was a, it was like an underground stream 
if it was anything. But I don't think we can call it a wave, right? So this is a, just a, a survey, an annotated bibliography, if you will, of these major nodes along the way leading up to the 2000s when steampunk really kicks off, really explodes. And that's where we're going to take things uh, in, upcoming, in, in upcoming conversations. We're going to see, like, why did this happen? Why did it happen at this time? And what made it popular? Which narratives were contributing to that? Uh, there's no doubt in my mind, though, that Wild Wild West was absolutely one of those moments. Um, and so for the longest time, when somebody said, what's steampunk? And I would want to give them my pedantic academic response, I would all often just resolve to, uh, did you see Wild Wild West? And say, oh yeah, that was a fun movie, right? And I'd go, uh-huh, it's kind of like that. <laughs>